go ahead and open them to Matt or Matthew, First John, chapter two, and we're going to start with verse eighteen. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, ha- and all, ha- and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. May God bless the reading of his word. So, John just recently reminded all of us and reminded his, his readers to not love the world. Don't love the things of the world. Don't fall into the world for all of your desires, for all of your passions. Because in the end, the world is just going to pass away. In the end, it's just going to be no more. And all that will remain is that of God. And so he encouraged us to abide with God. And now we come to a, po- a point, what happens to those who don't abide? What happens to those who decide to no longer um, stay within the community, who decide that this Christian life isn't worth it, or if they come up with different ideas for the Christian faith? And that's what we have now. And let's continue on with verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John continues the letter by again adding a term of endearment to his readers. He calls them children. Again, we should not assume that John is writing only to children, but instead that he is calling all of those who read the letter his children. He cares for the individuals whom he is addressing as he takes responsibility for them in the faith. By calling them all children, regardless of actual age, it reminds them of his love. And it also reminds them that he is considered their elder and deserves respect for his calling um, and that they should listen to him. Likewise, there may be an additional element of them being children of God, but that hasn't quite come up yet within the letter, and we'll get to that within the next few weeks. John now describes the time in which they all live. He calls it the last hour. This term is in reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Along with all things placed under his feet, there is an understanding of the final judgment which will take place when Christ returns. All of this is rolled up in this last hour, the time before the second coming of Christ and the changing of all things. We then receive a teaching which has apparently been taught early within the church, and that is concerning the Antichrist. The term Antichrist only occurs here in the letters of John. However, there are elements of the one who is to come, an eschatological evil being whom Christ taught about in Matthew and prayed against in the Gospel of John. Likewise, we receive some information concerning this particular Antichrist in the letters of Paul, and it appears that this individual, whoever he may be, or whoever it may be, will come during that final hour. Yet it is not this particular Antichrist which John focuses on. Instead, he focuses on the many Antichrists who have come. It appears that such individuals were harbingers to the coming of the evil one. In a way, they are a type of anti-John the Baptist. However, what it means for these individuals to be Antichrists is something we will have to consider later. John concludes 
the verse by making it known that this is how they will know it is the last hour. These individuals who have arisen, who are antichrists, are in John's mind further evidence for the second coming of Jesus. If one also takes into account the persecution of Christians under Nero and other Roman emperors during the time, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and the miracles that occurred during Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles, then it should not surprise us to understand why John would believe that the final hour was at hand. We then continue with verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. At this point, we partially learn who these antichrists are. They're individuals who were once part of the congregation of believers. Notice, too, how he phrases it, went out from us. The us implies those who have heard the word which was proclaimed by the apostles. In other words, the apostles came and proclaimed the gospel. And through this proclamation came these communities. Now these individuals have went out from these communities established by the sound teaching of the apostles. Yet why would these individuals decide to leave the apostolic community? What would cause them to depart, to go out from the communities established by the proclamation of the gospel? The answer John provides is that they were not of us. The greatest reason for abandoning and not abiding in a gospel community is because one never really belonged to it in the first place. Though they heard the gospel, and though it appeared that they had belonged to the community, in the end it is apparent by their actions that they actually were not. How does John know that they were never part of the community? Because of this reality. If they had been, they would have never left. This is a reflection of the perseverance of the saints. If one is a Christian, then one will persevere in the faith because God will keep them. He who began a good work in you will finish it, as Paul said. By discontinuing within the community, it represents the reality that the good work had never begun. Otherwise, they would have continued on in Christ. Yet even this kind of schism has a purpose. Though we should always grieve when individuals fall into false teachings and doctrines and lifestyles and therefore decide to follow a separate path than the one given by Christ and his apostles, John recognizes that there is something good to come from their leaving. In this, when they decide to depart from the truth presented, it becomes plain that they are all not of us. God is glorified in this, in that the gospel is better defined against false teachings. Likewise, there may come an unforeseen bonus to such a separation, and that is true reconciliation with the individuals who leave. While they are within the community pretending to play the part, they may be blind to their desperate need of the gospel. Once they have willingly left, however, or if the church discipline comes into play, whatever the case may be, then it is possible that true reconciliation between the individual and God and the individual and the community can occur. It is better to leave the church not in the faith and unrepentant, to return in faith and repentant, than to remain in the church thinking that one is in the faith and repentant when one is truly not in the faith nor repentant. So this comes to verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John now contrasts those who have gone out of the community with those who have remained. It is evident with this use of but. 
even though those who had gone out from them did not belong, he recognizes for those who have stayed, it is different. This is further emphasized by the you, which is actually plural, y'all. He is speaking to you all rather than just one individual. But what of these individuals? They have been anointed. Anointing is well documented in the Old Testament. From Moses' time, anointing had been used as a means of making sacred or set apart. This is seen while the, when the artifacts in the temple or tabernacle are anointed, and Aaron and his sons are anointed as priests. In their anointing, they would continue to minister, which may be what is in view here with those who have been anointed remaining in the faith. Later, and as we notice, Samuel also anointed David, setting him apart to be the eventual king of Israel. The question we want to ask is, who has anointed them? The term Holy One is generally associated with God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it generally refers to Jesus. Yet in the Gospel of John, the term Holy is used for the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. So it is entirely possible that the Holy One is meant for God, the Trinity, either focusing on one of the persons in the Trinity or all, with each being involved with anointing, which makes sense to me anyway. The effects of being anointed is that there is knowledge. This knowledge implies understanding, and these are very significant in 1 John. Because of this, it reminds us that proper knowledge and understanding are necessary for being included in the community. One must have obtained certain truths, without which one would be excluded from the community. This makes sense, especially when we consider that this chapter started with the proclamation of the gospel to these different congregations. That knowledge is necessary for them to even be involved with these congregants. We then come to verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. This final verse reflects this necessary knowledge He shows the readers that it is part of the reason he is writing to them, not because they are ignorant or lacking in the truth of the gospel, but because they do know the truth. Therefore, he is encouraging them to continue on in the knowledge that they have received. This is part of the purpose of the letter. The final thought reflects the lying versus truth motif um, we have seen repeatedly within 1 John. The reality is is that no lie is of the truth. A lie is antithetical to the truth by nature. This lie likely represents the reality of the schism which has occurred with those within with those within these congregations. Though these individuals who have left lie to themselves, to others, to God and lie about God, those who remain steadfast to the gospel proclamation can hold fast to the reality that they are in the truth. And being in the truth, know the truth about themselves, each other, God, and about God. The main point of this section is for these Christians to recognize that those within remain, those who remain within the community have the truth rather than a lie. They know Christ. They are antithetical to those who have left the community and have begun, who have become antichrists in deed and thought. Before we get to the application points, I did want to make a brief note. I know everyone would probably be excited to talk about Antichrist. We're waiting till next week. So I'm sorry if you were excited for the Antichrist discussion. (laughs) But it's going to happen, just not right now. Um, 
So now we're going to get to a long one. The glory of God in division. We have all experienced it in some capacity. There was once unity, and yet because of something occurring, there is disunity. There was once peace, followed by a time of disorder. What I am talking about is division. Division can occur in almost any area of life, from the individual to the social and corporate levels. Um, The division that we are going to be looking at today, though, is the division which can happen within the church. When it comes to church division, when it comes to church division, there are a few areas to consider. The first is that any division within a congregation is technically sorrowful. Unity is something which we should always be desiring in this life. We are in need of each other for our own personal spiritual growths and the growth of the congregation. While we may want to pretend we are all islands, the truth is is that we are connected and we should be connected together. That's how God wants us to be. Yet, division does happen. The question we want to ask ourselves is, what are bad reasons for divisions and what are good reasons for divisions? Simply put, while we do admit that division is always sorrowful, sometimes it is necessary. Other times, it is not. So let's consider these two questions. The first being, what is a bad reason for division to occur? The answer to this can be many things. We have all heard the stories of congregations splitting over some very weird things. For example, one congregation once split over the color of the carpet. Yes, they were installing new carpet in their sanctuary. One group wanted this color. One group wanted this color, and from that, division separated and the congregation split. This kind of division also happens with other things like curtains. This kind of division is silly. Too often, congregations forget that what makes them a congregation in the first place is not the building or the rug or the carpet or the, or the lights or anything, the curtains, but Christ. To have a split over something trivial like this seems unloving. Another might be how a person preaches. Never mind the content of what is being said in the sermons. All that matters is the presentation for many of us. Such superficial things are not worthy of division within congregations. And that doesn't necessarily mean the preacher, by the way. It could be anyone. um, Anyone who comes up to preach. But what are good reasons for division? This can be a number of things, as we have seen here in 1 John. First, a good reason for division may be certain doctrinal issues. A good example is Christology, or the study of Jesus Christ. If some believe that he is only a good teacher, and others believe that he is the Son of God, then such a division is going to be a good one for the congregation. Another one concerns two important societal issues today. How do we define personhood, and how do we define marriage? Congregations are splitting up over these kinds of issues. Do we accept the homosexual lifestyle or do we reject it? Do we support marriage equality or do we not? This is a doctrinal issue which is worthy of division because it deals not with the society problem, but with how we interpret humanity and God's design for us in personhood and in marriage. Another important one is the scriptures. How do we interpret the scriptures? Are they historically accurate or not historically accurate? Do they teach a lifestyle and that's it? Are they inerrant, infallible, sufficient? Or are they none of these things? This is an important doctrinal belief 
that is worthy of division because it will define the majority of a congregation's beliefs and lifestyle individually and corporately. These are just some examples of doctrinal statements which would be worthy of division. Yet, this does not answer the whole question because we still wonder, how can division glorify God? Can it glorify God? Is it always negative? Or can there be positive things associated with it? Well, according to John and other scriptures, there are positive things to occur because of division. First of all, certain divisions, if they are doctrinal or lifestyle in nature, can cause those who are unconverted to depart from those who are actually converted. Simply put, if an individual decides to leave a congregation over, let's say, um, a congregation's stance on sin, then such a departure is a good thing for the congregation as a whole. Likewise, if an individual who is spreading false doctrines gathers up others who will follow them and they depart, it is a good thing overall for the congregation since those who do not belong leave. This is what John notices when he discusses it in these verses above. In particular, when he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Notice, it is because they depart that the congregation can know that they were not of them. By having different views on doctrine and lifestyle, it can cause congregations to know who belongs and who does not. This is good for a congregation. And in the end, this kind of division glorifies God. This is also reminiscent of Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Again, this passage, we notice that certain division is necessary to distinguish between those who are genuine and those who are not. Part of the distinguishing mark in such a division is love, but it is also correct belief, or as John said previously, a correct knowledge and understanding. So that is the first. It can be good for the overall congregation for those producing bad fruit to be uprooted. But there is a second good element of division, Consider what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with this power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The individual in 1 Corinthians 5 was sleeping with his father's wife. The congregation should have taken measures to stop such a lifestyle, but instead they continued to accept him among the congregation. Paul, in the next few verses, reminds the Corinthians that a little yeast of sin infects the whole dough. To allow one to remain in a blatantly sinful lifestyle will only cause others to stumble into sin. Yet the main goal of this is not only for the congregation, But we also notice that it is reconciliation. Paul desires that the man be let go to Satan that is expelled from the church and given back to the world so that he would turn in repentance. 
That is the goal of this. It is not to punish the sinner for the sin's sakes. Is it is to desire reconciliation between the individual and God, and therefore with the congregation. Another passage which emphasizes such division is 2 Timothy 2, which says, Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius and Philetius, who have swerved, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This particular passage is telling. These individuals who were once part of the community were excommunicated because of a false belief, a false doctrine. Part of the reason for it was because it led to ungodliness, a lifestyle which is in sin rather than in holiness and righteousness. As we can see, what we believe will affect our lifestyles. Paul recognizes it here, and it would be wise for us to consider it as well. Ultimately, though, Paul did originally send out Hymenaeus for, this, for his own benefit. And we learn that in 1 Timothy. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As we notice, though Hymenaeus was excommunicated for his doctrinal statements, Paul excommunicated him for the purpose of reconciliation, to teach him not to blaspheme against God by having false doctrines. So it is that is the second important reason for division, so that those who have been excommunicated or who do leave the fellowship of believers would be reconciled through the judgments made by the congregation. This is how God can be glorified through something as sorrowful as division. Again, division is sorrowful because it means broken relationships. Yet in the midst of division, we should recognize that it can be used for the good by God. In certain times, division is necessary within congregations. While we seek unity, we should never forget that truth is more important than unity. Or as R.C. Sproul once said, truth is too important to kill in the streets for the sake of peace. So seek the truth. Seek the gospel and seek good doctrines which are rooted in the scriptures and church history. Even if it means having to be divisive, let's at least make sure that we are divisive on the side of truth. Now this leads us to our second point. And this is going to be a brief point on being anointed. As was said earlier, to be anointed was to be set apart. In today's verses we saw how those who remained in the faith that was proclaimed to them from the beginning have been anointed by the Holy One. That is significant, not only for them, but for us. The truth is, we too are anointed. If we belong to the same faith which they proclaimed, that which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we can be sure that we have been anointed, set apart for purpose. And that is for the glory of God. 
This setting apart means that we are to give our entire lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ, whether it be our marriages, parenting, business, friendships, other relationships. All these things belong under Christ and under his gospel. The more and more we give ourselves over to Christ in our lives, then the more and more we will glorify God who has saved us through his Son. This is possible for us not because of our own doing, but because of our anointing and the one who anoints us. While others are anointed by prophets, we, if we are in Christ, are anointed by God himself. He anoints us to be his sons and daughters through Christ. We are anointed to be princes and princesses, priests and priestesses of the kingdom of God. As one can imagine, this anointing is no small thing. It is given to us by grace and mercy. Though we are undeserving of this blessing, God has granted it to us. If ever the world comes after you, and you feel inadequate in your faith, just remember that the anointing given to you, the reason you are able to proclaim with the joyous noise of your salvation is because the one who anoints does not make mistakes. He is the source of our joy and the source of our peace. What is the best thing we can recommend knowing this anointing is given to us? Live like the anointed. Live in accordance with the scriptures and step with the spirit who anoints and indwells the anointed. Walk like Christ, the one by whom our anointing comes, and in the will of our Father who has sent both the Spirit and the Son. Live like one anointed, continuing in the sanctification, the change within that God has started in you if you are in Christ. Now we come to the third point, truth. One of the oldest questions that humanity has asked is, what is truth? This is the last thing Pontius Pilate says to Jesus before he hands him over to be crucified. After a fascinating conversation, that is the final question Pilate asks. What is truth? The irony of the answer standing right before him has not been lost on many who read about the account in the Gospel of John. But what is interesting is how John now discusses that these individuals know the truth. In 1 John, we have encountered the term of truth a few different times. In the first chapter, we encountered it with individuals who were living lifestyles contrary to the will of God. Such individuals were lying and not in the truth. Likewise, those who claimed to have no sin were also not in the truth. In this chapter, the theme continued with those who claimed to know him, that is Christ, yet walked and lived contrary to how Jesus walked and lived. Also, they do not have the truth. Therefore, we can be sure of a few things, and that is that John is using truth to establish three different things. The first is, truth is in regards to knowing God. In this capacity, the truth is a true knowledge of God rather than a false knowledge. We can actually know God truly, and because of this, it will have an effect on our behaviors, or at least it should. The second way John emphasizes truth is in knowing the gospel, which involves two truths. The first is knowing of self, the knowledge of self, and the second is knowledge of Christ. Concerning self, the truth is we are in need of salvation from our sin and from the wrath of God because of sins. This is a truth statement. If we were to deny our need for salvation or deny our sins, then we would be arguing contrary to the truth presented to us through the gospel. Concerning the knowledge of Christ, we understand that our need involves more than our own abilities. Therefore, knowing Christ, knowing what he has done in his life and in his victory over death, 
involves knowing the redemption which comes through him. In the end, it is knowing our need and knowing how we can be redeemed through Christ, which enables us to know the truth. Finally, the third way John emphasizes the truth involves in what we do. Knowledge is necessary for our salvation. John has established that many times. Knowledge, however, is not enough. Simply claiming to know Christ is not enough. We must also have the evidence of a transformed life through our anointing. In this way, we can know truth because of the evidence within us. That sanctification has begun in us by the power of God through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. We won't be perfect, but God has begun to lead us away from our sin and to Himself. In these ways, we can know truth, and it is a glorious thing to consider. In our day and age, truth is something which is constantly under attack. There are many who believe that we cannot actually even know truth. That or they believe that truth is relative to individuals. Therefore, a truth for you may not be a truth for me. Therefore, relativism has us all believing that there are no absolute truths. There is a logical problem, however, with this statement. If there is absolutely no absolute truths, then how can we believe our premise, which is an absolute statement? Saying something is absolutely implies an absolute. In other words, this relativism is self-defeating because it claims something which it argues against. As Christians, we can be sure that there is a thing as absolute truth, which will be truth regardless of time, space, and history. We can be sure that lying today will be lying tomorrow. We can be sure that blasphemy in the time of Christ is the same as today. We can be sure that the law of God yesterday will be the law of God tomorrow. Most importantly, we can know Christ died and through his death we can have salvation and know the anointing which comes through him. As the world turns, we will always be in need of defending the faith, defending the joy which we have through Christ. As Christians, do not hesitate to present your beliefs. Do not hesitate to have discussions and be willing to speak the truth. The world since the fall has been in need of truth. Ever since the devil started out asking, did God really say that? And we possess that truth. We possess the true knowledge of God, true redemption, true knowledge of humanity and the world. It is through Him we have this knowledge and we can be sure it is the truth because we know Him and know that He does not lie. So truth, in, so trust in the truth given, us, given to us through the proclamation of the gospel and cling to it. For in it we find peace, love, grace, mercy, and again we find truth. All of this reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through him we have our anointing, and it is through him we can know the truth at all. It is because of him we are willing to stand for truth, even if it means we are rejected. And it is by him we will stand at the end of days, triumphant over sin and death, because he was triumphant over sin and death. The gospel begins with our origins. In the beginning was God. He created the cosmos according to the power of his word. Last of all, he created humanity to be his image bearers. It is because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, morality, and displays hesed, we can as well. It is here we find sanctity, dignity, and worth to human life. Like God, however, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience into life or sin into disobedience into death.
We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. It is because of our sin we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a righteous and just judge. Thankfully, God did not leave us in this darkness forever. Instead, he sent his light and spoke his word into the darkness, and that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his blood we are bought and redeemed. It is through Christ our relationships can begin to be restored. His victory in life over death becomes our victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is two things. The first is repentance. We are to not live a sinful lifestyle. Instead, we are to live a repentant lifestyle, which is characterized by seeking the glory of God in our lives. We are to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We are to live according to the will of God, which is made known to us through Christ and his scriptures, by which we know to walk in step with the Spirit. The second is faith in Christ. While it is true that we are to live according to the glory of God, We also recognize our complete and total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do which saves us, but what Christ has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who remain disobedient in these things, there is only judgment. Even our greatest deeds are as filthy rags before our holy and just God. Therefore, they will face judgment for their sins if they do not repent and place their faith in Christ, for there is no salvation apart from Christ. For those who are obedient, there is no longer condemnation. Instead, they are made sons and daughters of God Most High. They experience the love of God reserved only for those who are in Christ Jesus. They will be glorified and become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where they will experience the peace of God forevermore. My hope, is that we would continue to be a people who live in the anointing given to us. That we would stand firm together for the truth of God and not be willing to back down even when it gets hard. That we would proclaim the gospel of truth for all to hear and for a broken world to know that they can have knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, and have a transformed life through His Son. Though division may come from the truth, We will boldly stand firm on Christ, knowing that the truth is worth fighting for, and it is worth proclaiming to all. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us the truth, because it is by knowing the truth we can distinguish what is true and what is false. And Lord, this is the difference. This is the difference between life and death. It is the difference between walking in the light and walking in darkness is to know truth. And Lord, you have sent it through your son, Jesus Christ. So may we continue to seek after you. And Lord, continue to pull at our hearts so that our hearts would be transformed according to your will, through the power of your spirit, through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, Rock of Ages.